Welcome to Speed of Science, the podcast. This series was created by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin and is supported by Pfizer. Speed of Science is a specially created window exhibition where we examine the world we live in now and what the world could look like in the future. Speed of Science is an evolution of 2019's We Are All Scientists, an exhibition that examined the characteristics we all have that we use when we think scientifically. Speed of Science examines how we have all been called upon to be scientists in our response to the coronavirus pandemic. This podcast series examines the role vaccines play in our daily lives, from personal scale, where we hear about how vaccines work inside our bodies, to looking at community or herd immunity and how that functions, and then onto a more global scale, where we understand the current context of vaccine development and what we can hope for from the future. Featuring conversations between science gallery mediators and lead researchers in Trinity College Dublin, we hope that this will be an enlightening and enjoyable experience. This episode features science gallery mediator Killian Gertlin talking to Dr. Claire Gardner and Dr. Fred Sheedy about the vaccine development pathway and the types of vaccines we are able to create using current technology. Hi, I'm Killian Gartland. I'm a mediator at Science Gallery Dublin and I'm an immunology student in final year. Hi, I'm Frederick Sheedy. Um, you can call me Fred. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Trinity College in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology. So my name is uh, Claire Gardner. I'm a professor in the School of Biochemistry and Immunology. Uh, I have a research lab there working on uh, human immunology. Uh, we do some vaccine research as part of that. And I am also in charge of running the final year immunology moderatorship. How would you describe in a very simple, broad way how a vaccine works, how it stimulates the immune response? Uh, in a very broad, kind of general way, what I would say a vaccine is, is really it's a, a lesson. It's educating your immune system and it's a very specific lesson. So it's giving it a very specific, you're teaching it almost a very specific language, I suppose. One of the most common is this, where you have this live or attenuated uh, version of the pathogen. And uh, the idea of uh, that one is you're taking the, the, the pathogen that causes the disease and you're modifying it in a lab or in a pharmaceutical company or whatever. So you're either killing it or changing it, attenuating it, so that it won't cause the disease but it will cause an immune response that is good at fighting it. So again, you build up that arsenal of weapons that you need, and then if you ever encounter the pathogen in real life in its dangerous version, you'll have everything ready and prepared, and you'll be able to clear it without it causing too much harm. So that would be what we call live attenuated. And those tend to be the best vaccines because um, they provoke a very strong immune response because you've so many bits of the bug in there. You're going to hit lots of different bits of the immune system and get a very good, strong and robust immune system. Okay. so the problem with those vaccines is that they can't be given to everyone. And in occasional cases, for example, if you have someone who is immunocompromised, you don't want to give them a live vaccine because there's a danger that if they don't have a normal working immune system and you give them this live vaccine, that they could actually get the disease. And that happened. 
that has happened in the past and that's not a good thing. So clearly you can't give these vaccines to immunocompromised people and pregnant women aren't advised to get them. Um, So there's a whole range of individuals who these are not suitable for. So along with that, uh, so what people tried to do was, well, can we develop a vaccine that we know will be safe in everyone? And that's where advances in science came into it. So they said, well, okay, so we know that this germ causes this disease. So let's figure out which bit of the germ is good at causing an immune response, but we won't put in the whole germ. We'll just dissect it out and figure out which bit is good. And so that's what they did. They basically used, you know, sophisticated techniques to break that germ down and test it and see which bits of it were good in terms of triggering an immune response. And they're what are called subunit vaccines. So you can take an element of the pathogen and put it into a person to get an immune response. These vaccines are not as good in terms of triggering a strong immune response. So what people have come up with is, okay, we want to use this little bit of the pathogen because we know that's what we want an immune response against, but we need a bigger response. So is there anything we can put in to kind of um, amplify that response a little bit? And so that's where people came up with this idea of using an adjuvant. And so what they do with an adjuvant is say, They give the adjuvant to basically, it acts like an amplifier. It just amplifies the immune response. But they have a little bit of the pathogen, uh, which triggers an immune response. And that's the bit that actually will protect you. So that's a subunit vaccine. Then the other thing they have done now is almost take a step back again. And they've started looking at, for example rather than actually make a little bit of the subunit of the vaccine and putting that into someone, could we make some sort of a little, they call them vectors. So basically, can we put in some information in terms of either DNA or something and get the person who we give the vaccine to, can they make the proteins that will then stimulate the immune response. A big issue as well is, um, I guess, defining what a, a good immune response is and defining what protection is. And this is something that even COVID-19 is showing up now. What does it mean to be protected against COVID-19? Does it mean you never get sick? Does it mean you get a little bit sick, but don't pass it on and, and never get really, really bad and have to go to ICU? Does it mean you have antibodies? Does it mean, you know, we're not really sure what actual protection is. We can measure different bits of an immune response, but the cumulative effect of all these things is still something that is hard to define, I suppose. And it's a big problem in, in or a challenge in uh, vaccine science is to define what we call correlates of protection. And that's really something you can measure in a vaccine study to that you can actually say, oh, that's up, that there, there's an antibody here, there's a cell here that recognizes it. Therefore, that person's going to be protected from the disease. But that's a big assumption to make, I think. One of the key things in terms of before you get into 
you know, uh, what kinds of vaccines they are or there are, I think it's important to know why you want a vaccine, okay, and what a vaccine does. Um, so if you think about the best scenario when you get an infection, what happens is you get an infection, your body mounts an immune response against the infection, and all going well, you get rid of that infection because your immune system does what it's supposed to do and you clear it. And the beauty of the immune system is that if you ever encounter that particular pathogen again, you won't get sick because you'll already have built up all the resources and arsenal of weapons that you need to fight against that particular pathogen. So the goal of a vaccine is to inject or give you something, not necessarily inject, but to give you something that tricks the immune system into having an immune response. So you put in something that looks like a pathogen but isn't a pathogen, it'll trick the immune system, the immune system will prepare all that range of weapons that it needs, and then if you ever actually encounter the real pathogen, you're not going to get sick from it because you already have everything prepared in advance. So the goal of vaccination is to trigger an immune response in a person. What are the different types of immune response to different pathogens? Like why would you need one response for one pathogen versus another response for another? Um, because I guess pathogens come in different uh, flavors and, and sizes as well. Um, there's viruses, there's bacteria, they look different to the immune system, so they'll drive different things, but they also infect cells quite differently. Um, some pathogens, particularly bacteria, would grow well, what we call extracellularly, um, and viruses actually infect cells and get in and bust the cells open, and that's how they cause disease. So we need to kind of fight them um, at, at different levels. And actually, I think what our immune system uh, is really good at and is designed to do is it, it fights uh, bacteria and viruses at their level, at the single cell level. And we're, uh, there's cells of our immune system that you know, take them on one-on-one -on -one almost and are kind of fighting that war at the microscopic level. And some cells in our immune system um, target cells that might be infected and kind of send them off to die in a suicide way for the, for the greater good. And then there's um, the extracellular um, bacteria and pathogens that the cells of our immune system have to make things against that kind of they secrete and um, shoot out to, to target them. Um, you describe some of those things like what exactly an antibody does, because there's a lot of talk obviously about antibodies and antibody tests with COVID-19 and uh, just to go through what exactly an antibody is and how that helps our immune system to fight either a virus like COVID-19 or um, a bacteria infection. There's uh, two arms to the immune system, this adaptive immune system, which is what we want to, to trigger uh, for memory and what vaccination hopes to do. But there's also our innate immune system, as I said, that primes and helps the adaptive re specific response as well. But our innate immune system has ways for dealing with infection as well, all these kind of innate defenses. And a lot of them are shared, with the, the mechanisms are shared with cells of the adaptive uh, immune response as well. Um, but the idea, if you just have an innate immune system, you won't get that memory response. So you're more susceptible to reinfection, although this is what trained immunity uh, is questioning. But um, so having the adaptive immune response um, 
it shares a lot of the effector mechanisms, but it's got that specificity and it's more rapid as well the second time around. So when we induce immune memory, either by infection or by vaccination, um, you, your response to reinfection is much more rapid and it's much more specific. And um, so it can, it's really tailored to the, the new, the, or the, the infecting pathogen. Um, so those mechanisms then, um, and would be things like their cells of our immune system we call phagocytes. They're like, I mean, you've heard, I call them the amoeba of our uh, immune system that uh, engulf pathogens, cargo, food, and break things down. Um, and, and they would take up extracellular uh, bacteria and break them down and viruses. Um, but also there's um, soluble components of proteins that would be in our blood and in our tissues that can uh, uh, react to the presence of microbes. And these would be things like complement, complement proteins. Um, we also have antimicrobial peptides all over our body and particularly on our skin and mucosal surfaces, our mouth, our lung, our GI tract. So there's lots of ways our body protects against infection and fights it off. And that would be these non-specific ways, but the adaptive immune system um, uses them, but adds in that specificity against particular pathogens uh, and that memory. So antibodies are a perfect example then of that. Um, so antibodies are molecules that get secreted um, into the blood, into the tissue, and they very specifically recognize um, the pathogens and particularly their antigens, and they react to them. They neutralize them, they bind to them, and then they kind of act as a cloak really so they don't uh, aren't seen by the things that the, the or maybe a blanket that blocks them from doing what they would normally do, infecting cells. Um, they also kind of mark them for degradation and turnover by these cells of our innate immune system and other cells of our adaptive immune system so that they'll be taken up better and these uh, macrophages, the amoeba of our immune system, will eat them a lot, a lot better and get rid of them. And... Um, they can interact with the complement system as well, this system of proteins in our blood, and uh, enhance that, that activity and actually cause direct then lysis <laughs> of a bacterial cell, uh, cause direct um, uh, breakdown of the bacterial or, or viral cell to occur and cause it just to spill its contents and die and no longer be able to replicate. Um, so, and they're, they're really important. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and they certainly, um, because they're present in our, in our blood, once we've been immunized or once we have immune memory, um, they're ready to go anytime we have, a, a, we encounter that pathogen again, they'll neutralize it, um, much more efficiently the second time around before it even causes a problem. I just think one other thing that's important to say about antibodies, especially because people are obsessed about measuring them now in COVID, um, they're one arm of our, our adaptive immune response, but there's other players there. Of course, people might have heard of these, the T cells. And these, are, um, other, these are cells that actually would help identify infected cells, uh, so virally infected cells, and send them for suicide to, to, to die for the greater good so that they can't go on and uh, be infectious any longer. Um, so it's not always about antibodies. And even if we, these antibodies aren't present in our blood, it doesn't mean 
Um, we've never encountered that pathogen that we don't have in memory, immune memory. Antibodies are made by a very specific cell, another number. Immunologists are obsessed with B cells, um, so not T cells. Um, so the B cells that make them uh, are probably still there. Those, those very specific B cells, and there's loads of different types of B cells because of uh, the, the million uh, combinations that can occur to generate various different antibodies. Um, so there's lots of other kind of correlates of immunity as well. It's not just about antibodies. And even if they're not present, it doesn't mean we don't have the ability to make them. The problem with a lot of immunology and, and science research is um, traditionally things are based on what's in the blood. And your blood mightn't always hold everything. I mean, it's usually a good indicator, but especially in immunology, um, there's a new saying now that immunology, like politics, is local. Uh, so where you encounter that pathogen, um, if it's in, if it's in the, uh, if it's a respiratory pathogen or a foodborne pathogen in your GI tract, that it's actually maybe in, in those areas, your immune memory might develop. So you might have a, a, um, a source of these T cells or B cells at those sites, and it mightn't um, always be detectable all over the body or in, in, in the blood. Uh, so if we talk then about vaccine trials, so we know that um, it typically starts in like an academic research lab where researchers are looking at, you know, a virus or bacteria that needs to be vaccinated against, picking out the parts that provoke the immune response. But then once it actually starts being tried in clinical trials, uh, what do those look like? Because we keep hearing, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. So if you could just go through uh, what those mean. Um, so again, it may help just to illustrate from my own experience. Um, I've been working with a group in Oxford who are currently uh, developing vaccines for hepatitis C virus and HIV-1. So th there are some viruses, for example, the two I've just mentioned, and it's been really, really difficult to generate a vaccine against either of those. There is no vaccine currently in use. And so we have just finished a clinical trial um, where they have been testing a new approach to those vaccines. And uh, basically uh, what happens is you start off with what's called a phase one. And uh, for the phase one, you have to go through a whole series of regulations and hoops and so on. And um, you have to define the cohort of people that you're going to recruit. Uh, initially, the phase one, it's a small trial. It doesn't involve lots and lots of people. And it's really about safety. Okay, it's not about whether the vaccine works. It's about, is it safe to administer to people? And how much of a dose is safe to give to people? So basically, um, they recruit individuals. They have clinical research centers individuals come in and depending on, you know, there are different ways of administering a vaccine. Uh, so, for example, sometimes it would be intramuscular. And uh, my understanding is, um, the, for example, the ones that use that viral vector backbone, uh, that they're all intramuscular. But there are other vaccines that can be given intranasally or uh, just under the skin. So there's a whole range of different approaches. Um, some can be given orally um, as well. Um, so depending on 
the route of administration, you know, they'll bring a candidate in, they'll uh, do their physical, they'll do bloods, they'll make sure they're healthy, they have no underlying issues. Um, and actually, they do pre-work on them before they actually start the trial. So they bring them in and they make sure they're healthy and make sure they're not just lying about. So they'll test them, for example, in the trial that I was doing. It's a vaccine against hepatitis C and HIV. So they make sure they don't have hepatitis C or HIV before you start. Um, so they, they basically evaluate the people before they start the trial. And then they come in and then they administer the vaccine. In, in different trials, depending on what they're trying to measure, um, they release the patients home generally, uh, and then they will call them back at time points, at which point they will then take a blood sample from them and measure something to see if they're triggering an immune response and if the vaccine looks like it might be working. So time points would include things like one week, after vaccination, two weeks after vaccination, four weeks after vaccination. Um, and then at some point, <clears throat> depending on the vaccine that's used, <clears throat> excuse me, they may need to do what we call a booster vaccine. And so, um, again, if, I, if you think back to, I talked about the different types of vaccines. If you're using a live or an attenuated one, you tend not to need a booster because that gives you such a strong immune response. But if you're using any of the other types, you do tend to need a booster. So they'll call the uh, individuals in for a booster. And again, they'll monitor them. You know, they'll check their liver, their kidney functions, their temperature. They'll uh, write down any of what they call adverse events and, uh, and so on. And you've probably seen in the media that the AstraZeneca trial, a number of the trials were stopped at various times. And when they, when they record if there's a problem, they record them as either adverse events or severe adverse events. And if there's a severe adverse event, they tend to stop the trial and look at it and check and see if it could have been triggered as as a result of the vaccine or whatever they're testing, or whether it may just be random and down to bad luck in terms of someone's genetics or their prior exposure to something or whatever. Um, and then they'll resume it again if they're happy that everything is, is working. So what they'll do then is they'll monitor uh, these individuals over time and make sure that there aren't adverse events that the vaccine is well tolerated. There are only mild side effects, if any. Um, and I know that, for example, in some of the COVID trials recently, uh, certainly some of the centres were giving people paracetamol in advance, <laughs> which I thought was very sensible <laughs> because it would alleviate most of the common symptoms that somebody might have after a vaccine. Um, so basically... They monitor them. They then have to report those results back to the regulatory board. And if everything looks like it's okay, that it's well tolerated, um, you know, whatever dose is well tolerated, uh, then they will do what they call a phase two. And what they're aiming for in a phase two is more to check, does the vaccine work? So in that case, you're, you, you need to maybe target individuals who might benefit from having the vaccine. So in the first case, you're just taking random healthy volunteers, whereas for phase two, you'll be getting in the people 
who are likely to need it most. So, for example, in the case of COVID, they would be recruiting more elderly cohorts because they're an obvious vulnerable cohort. Um, and you will test in, you know, a, a wider range of individuals um, for safety again and look for evidence again of immune efficacy. Are you getting an immune response in these people when you inject them with the vaccine? And if all that goes to plan, then you do a phase three study. And that's where most of uh, the drug companies or a lot of the drug companies are at now. And that's thousands. So that can range between 10,000 individuals and 30,000 individuals. So it's a very large scale operation, um, but it will give you very good data in terms of whether it's safe to administer to a large population. Now, if you imagine we're, we're in a situation now where the world's population is over 7 billion, and they're estimating that they can have, I don't know, two point something billion vaccines available by April or May of next year. They're going to inject those potentially into two billion people. You'd need to know that it's a safe thing to do. So it's really important that they do these studies and do them properly. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Yeah, And uh, we'll see you at the next episode. That was Speed of Science, the podcast, brought to you by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin and Pfizer. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to check out the other podcasts in this series.